it's very helpful to have your Bible with you, especially for this morning as we're going to be going back and forth between a few different chapters around Genesis 11. So that's handy if, if not next time, <laughs> bring your Bible. Um, most families have different rites of passages for children to become adults. I don't know what it looked like in your family. Maybe it was you become a teenager, you're on your way to being an adult, you get your driver's license, whatever it looks like. For my family, it was a little unique. It wasn't a spoken rite of passage, but it was the idea of being able to beat my dad in a fight. Now, we never actually fist fought, but the idea of being able to beat him was like, that's what it means to be a man. That's, that's, what it, that's when I'm an adult, when I can beat him in a fight. And starting off, you know, you're, you're pretty obviously weak. And I was young when I first had that innate desire to beat my dad in a fight. And uh, you would lose wrestling matches pretty easily or hand fighting, whatever it was. But as you get older, you get more tactical and, and smart. And there was a point, I don't remember exactly when, along my journey of growing up where it just stopped. We didn't fight anymore. And um, my dad, um, he probably, I, I don't know if he thought that I became a man, but in my mind, it's like, he's too scared to take me on anymore. So that's, that's my excuse for that. But there is that time as a child, I, I think most people go through this stage where you're growing up, you're not quite an adult yet, but you want the authority and the responsibility and to show that you can make your own decisions you want to be your own person, and you're kind of wrestling through, I'm not there yet, but I want to be there. And it, maybe it looked different in your house. Maybe it was winning a chess match or getting your first full-time job. Um, whatever it was, there comes a point when we want to, or we desire to, make our own path or control our own life. And it's not unique just for children. All of humanity does this, and we have been doing this. And as we spend time going through Genesis 11, we're going to be reminded that humanity's natural desire is to set their own destiny. Our natural desire is to set our own destiny. So before we get into the first nine verses of Genesis 11, I want to kind of catch you up on what's been going on. The previous chapter, chapter 10, is called the Table of Nations. And the reason we call it this is because we get the genealogies after, from Noah, after the flood. So we get the flood where there's all the people die except for Noah, his kids and their spouses. And then we have this genealogy of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we get to see kind of how the different people groups all around the world came into existence, genealogies after genealogy. So we get this big macro overview of how we get to where we are, or at least the Israelites at Mount Sinai kind of get an idea of, of where they are. But then we move to chapter 11 of Genesis, and it almost seems to repeat the same story, except now it's not focusing on genealogies and a macro overview. Now it kind of hones in, and it's more specific. And we get to see why don't these people groups communicate with each other anymore? And we get to see how the separation happened, and we learn some theological lessons as well. So read with me Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and let's burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower of which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, the, the word Babel looks very similar to a word in Hebrew that is referred to confuse. So maybe your Bibles might say that as well. But as we look at this narrative, we see this idea of humanity being cast around the whole globe and it's one of God's judgment. They're being sent everywhere as God's judgment. Mankind tried to create their own security. They tried to make the name for themselves and then God steps in. But what I find interesting right off the bat is how this passage fits in with the beginning 10 chapters of Genesis. If you know a little bit about what goes on from Genesis 1 to Genesis 10, it's interesting the way this plays in. So I'll give you a little summary. We see God creates and everything is good, but then humanity sins and what happens? They're displaced from the Garden of Eden. Then we see Cain kills his brother. What happens? He's sent away. He's displaced as well. Then generations pass and evil grows, so much so that God's sickened by their wickedness. And then God wipes out almost all of humanity, except for Noah and his family. And then we're led to Genesis 11. The people rebel against God again, and God casts them out from the place that they have huddled together. God is constantly correcting, punishing, and judging humanity. They don't learn their lesson. They constantly want to choose their own path. They want to set their own destiny and they don't learn. And as you read through Genesis, one thing that you may miss that the original readers wouldn't have is the importance of the term the East. When we see the East, the original readers would have immediately thought something is going on. When Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, they are sent to the East. When Cain leaves, he is sent to the East. And a couple chapters after Genesis 11, when Abraham and Lot are deciding who gets which land, Lot goes to the east and he takes land near Sodom. Probably rings a bell when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, not a good thing. They're known for the judgment that they received. So in Genesis 11, when it talks about the east, the readers would have instantly known something not good is about to happen. That's representative of being distant from God's blessing and we know it doesn't turn out great for them. So they stay together, they build a tower, and God scatters them. In seeking their own destiny, what they have done is they've sought to minimize God. They sought to minimize God by seeking their own destiny. They've raised themselves above him. So a question that we need to answer this morning with this text is in seeking our own destiny, how do we minimize God? And I think there are three ways that we see the people do this in the text that are very applicable for us. The first is we minimize God by diminishing his power. We diminish his power. The people try to control God. They try to have some form of control over his own power. In our modern writing, we use different literary devices to get a point across. We use this in our speech too. So I'll give you an example. Imagine you're coming into church this morning and you almost hit a deer on your way in. And then you get into the foyer and you see a friend of yours there and you go up to them and you say, hey man, you would not believe what happened on the way in. The craziest thing happened to me. And then you go in and talk about how you almost hit a deer. Your friend listening, they might say, well, I know the area the church is in and there's a lot of kind of spaces that deers are in. So I wouldn't necessarily, it's not unbelievable that you could see a deer and it's probably not the craziest thing that's happened to you before, but you use those words anyways because you wanna get the point across. You want your listener or your friend to kind of listen in to what you're saying. And we would call that hyperbole in that situation. And the Bible uses different literary devices to get us to lean in and listen to an important idea that's being taught. And the literary device in Genesis 11 that we may have missed is called a chiasm. A chiasm is what we see here. A chiasm is used when ideas or verses, they book match each other to focus in on one main point, usually in the middle of it. So the first verse and the last verse are similar. The second verse and the second last verse are similar and they kind of have similar themes to point in at the middle of what's being taught. So if you have your Bibles with you, look at Genesis 11 and I'll show you kind of how this chiasm is used. 
So in verse one, what do we see? The whole world has one language. We have one language. Verse nine, what do we see? The speech of the whole world is confused. Kind of contrasting there. Verse two, the people all gather together in one place. What do we see in verse eight? The Lord scatters over the world. Verses three and four, we have this message from the people. Come, let us build. And then verse six and seven, we see this message from the Lord. Come, let us confuse. So all of this is pointing to verse five. And what does it say in verse five? It says, the Lord came down. Now that's cool, but what is the significance of that? Why does it matter that the Lord came down? Is it because their tower that they were trying to build was actually so short that the Lord had to come way down to see it? Is it kind of like a, a satire of God talking about them? Is building a skyscraper a sin? Is that what God is trying to say here? It's not necessarily a sin to build a skyscraper, but we need to once again remember what did this passage mean to the original audience? We need to do a little bit more contextual work to help us know why does it matter that the Lord came down? So when we hear a tower being built, we likely think skyscraper. 90 stories tall, we think of the CN Tower or these massive towers trying to be built into the heavens. And that was almost certainly not the case of what was going on. We get that idea from different artists that have done renditions of the Tower of Babel. But what was likely being built was a building that was similar at the time, like a pyramid of sorts. Um, and they would use this in the middle of their city. So the type of building it most likely was is something called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was very commonly built during that era in that area of the world in the Middle East, kind of near where Babylon was. And these buildings were built in the middle of the city. They were almost like a pyramid, but with a, a tower or a little room at the top of this building. And they would use this room at the top of this building with priests and they would give sacrifices to whatever God they were worshiping in that town or in that area. And the goal was to get the God to come down, to get him to rest in this room so that they could create a bridge between heaven and between earth. So they wanted to create this link, this bridge between the two. And when they were doing this, if the people of Genesis 11 were doing this, then we can see that the sin that they are likely participating in is not building a tower. Construction is not the sin, but rather the attempt to control God or have some kind of power over him. They're trying to bring divinity down to their own level is what they're likely doing here. And by somehow getting God to come down, they hope to contain him. We can get him in this building. We can get him to come down and stay here. And then we can have some kind of power and control and some security in ourselves. When we see this type of context, it drives home the chiasm. What's, what's verse five again? The Lord comes down. The Lord comes down. They're probably thinking, can we just figure out a way to get God to come down? Can we figure out just the right formula of things we need to do to get God to come down? And as we move to verse five, God does come down. He does. But in fact, him coming down is the whole message of this story. The question is, what happens when he comes down? Is he contained in this building, in this room by the people? Is their ability to get God to come down, their own power and their own strength? They're such great people. No, when God comes down, he is in complete control. His power is on display. He's not confined to the tower. He's not subservient to their desires. Rather, he disrupts the people. He confuses their language. He stops their building process and he sends them all over the face of the earth. This is an act from God of judgment and of justice. He sees their evil that they're participating in when they come together and trying to make themselves little gods. They can believe they can accomplish whatever they want and God says, no, that's not happening. You can't harness my powers. You can't take control of me. I am the master, I am the one in control. But what the people are saying is we wanna be the master of our own lives. We want God in the picture, but we wanna control his power. We wanna have some type of authority in this situation. They try to use God and they get burned. Now there's a story 
of a little red hen. You may have heard this story. It's a kid's book. Um, Some of you may have heard it, but the way it goes is there's a few different animals during the time of a drought. And there's a hen, a little red hen that's going on the way and he finds some wheat. And he asks others, can you help me plant this grain of wheat? He asks all the other animals and they say, no, we can't, we're too busy. So he plants the grain, she plants the grain of wheat on her own. And then it's time to pick or cut and thresh the grain and ask for help. And everyone's like, no, we're too busy. And it goes on and on and on. And it goes to the point where she bakes the bread. And as she's baking the bread, she comes to the people and says, who will help me eat this bread? And they're all like, oh, we'll help you. We'll, we'll jump in and help you with that. And she pretty much says too bad. And her and her chicks all eat the bread themselves and they take it and they don't give any for the rest. And while there's a good lesson to be learned in that story about reaping and sowing, I think we often are reminded through that story of how we treat God, our perspective towards God ourselves. God, I wanna receive blessings from you. I wanna receive good things from you, God. But other than that, I don't want anything else to do with you. I don't want anything else to do with you during the rest of my life. I want your power, but I don't want anything else. We may not be building a tower today to try and control God, but the root problem that they dealt with is the same that we deal with today. We try and fit God into a little box in our life of what he can do and what he can't do. And we want to be happy with that. We want our destiny our own. We want control. So how do we diminish God's power? How do we do that today? I think there's four, there's many things, but I just picked four that we can talk about. First, I think we try and diminish God's power by just using some magic words to control God to work. If we just say the right words in Jesus' name, God has to heal. God has to do things for us. We just say the right words, it'll happen. Don't be fooled into thinking there's a specific formula you can go about in life that will force God to act on your behalf. God will not be mocked and he cannot be tamed. Secondly, we got to watch out for others that say, if you want to experience God's power, you got to go through me. You got to go through me to find God, or you got to go through me to, to, to see and experience God. The Bible says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and between man. You can go directly to God because of what Jesus has done. This means you don't need to give someone money in order to hope that God will act. That doesn't work like that. Don't be deceived into thinking that. Don't be deceived that you need to go to someone else in order to pray to God. You can go directly to him because of Jesus. What does Jesus say to the woman who touches his cloak in Matthew 9? Or what does he say to the lepers in Luke 17? He says, your faith has healed you. Your faith is what has made you well. Not giving money to someone, not your status. It's your faith that heals. This is also a warning to mature believers that can often think, I don't need to learn anything from younger believers. I'm far ahead of them. I've kind of done my own thing. I've grown a lot in my life. We need to be reminded it's the spirit of God that has worked in us. And if it's the spirit of God that has matured us and has allowed us to understand more of God, then we see it's the same spirit of God that dwells and lives in the younger believers. We can learn from both the younger believer and the older believer, and it's the same God. This is why in 1 Timothy, we're told, don't disregard someone because of their youth, their physical age, or their spiritual age. Thirdly, we see the belief, we sometimes fall into the belief that God can heal, but he won't. Yeah, I know God can do anything. I know God can heal anyone regardless of the situation, but I just haven't seen him do that in my life. Or I've been praying for it and he hasn't healed, so why should I even bother praying? But we know the Bible tells us to pray, so we pray, we give him lip service, but we don't actually believe that God will heal. We don't actually think that he's gonna do what he says he can do in his word. We the Bible tells us we should expect God to heal. We don't assume that God's going to heal. We don't presume, yes, God will heal, but we expectantly pray to God that he can and he will heal. It's, it's faith in him. And then fourthly, we kind of fall in this belief that thinking because God loves us, he's gonna give us what we desire. If God loves me, he'll give me what I desire. And we 
oftentimes creep into this thinking in a smaller degree. We see other Christians have things and we think, well, if God has blessed them with that, then God must be able to bless me with that. And he's going to bless me with that. Even some things that are not bad to, to want, to desire, whether it's marriage or kids or whatever it is, we can see God has given that to other people. And we sometimes tell lies to others about this. You know, God's got someone out there for you or just, just keep praying God's going to give you kids. You don't necessarily know that to be true. That's, a, that's not true of what God says in his word. God cares about his people. God provides for his people, but that doesn't look the same for every single person. It doesn't. God in his word tells us what is true. He tells us his promises. And when we attempt to kind of put God in a box of what he will do or what he won't do, and he hasn't said it in his word, you're diminishing his power and you're misunderstanding his promises. So the first way we see is a diminishment of his power. The second way we minimize God in our life is by downplaying his necessity. We often downplay the necessity of God. So look back at verse four. What do the people say? It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. It's a little funny, isn't it? What's people's desire? Their first desire is to make a name for themselves. They wanna be remembered. From generation to generation, we want people to know we built this tower, we built this city, we're a great people. And well, we're talking about them today, so I guess they are remembered, but what are they remembered by? Not their great power, not their great building ability. They're remembered by their foolishness. They're remembered by their sin. It's, a, it's almost ironic. They are remembered, but it's because they're fools. So what they're saying in this text is really, we can achieve great things without God. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's do great things without him. If we come together, if we unify together, we can do so much good. Does that sound like anything you hear going on now? Let's make a name for ourselves. Now, what caused this desire to gather up? And who's leading this? Is it kind of a democracy? They're all equal parts they're playing along the way. Chapter 11 doesn't tell us. But again, if we go back to chapter 10, we see a little more insight into what's going on. One of Noah's sons was called Ham. And one of Ham's sons was named Cush. And one of Cush's sons was named Nimrod. Now, instinctively, you probably think this guy's a fool if his name's Nimrod, right? But he was actually highly thought of by his peers. He's called a skillful hunter and a warrior, and he stood out among all the people. And a little aside from that, I think one of the reasons we, in our modern day, think of Nimrod as a fool is actually because of Looney Tunes. Bugs Bunny is always calling Elmer Fudd a Nimrod almost as a, a joke because he's trying to kill animals and he, he's not able to get a single animal, like some great skillful hunter that you are. And I think that's kind of played into our, our culture. Um, but that aside, you don't hear many people naming their kids Nimrod, even though he seemed like a, a great guy or a great hunter rather. But we're, we're told in chapter 10, verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 10, that Nimrod had control over a great deal of area. And one of his first areas of control was Babel in the land of Shinar. And that's right what we're talking about today. We also see later, a few generations later, in Numbers 13, verse 33, that some of Nimrod's descendants were considered giants. When the people are going into the promised land, we see, whoa, these people are huge. And those are some of the descendants of Nimrod. So he was likely a man of, of big stature, a, a big guy. So he's a hunter. He's a big guy. He has control over the area. And the Bible doesn't tell us much more about him, but we can assume that he was the one kind of in charge of what's going on at Babel. And we can see why he was able to persuade the people just a couple generations later to stop serving God and to serve self-interest for protection. The people's language in verse four also shows a little bit of disregard for God's value, right? They're pretty much saying, if we're successful in building this tower and building this city, then we won't be dispersed. 
That's the logic they're using here. If we can do this, God won't be necessary for us anymore. We don't need him to protect us. We don't need him to provide for us. We have each other. We have this great tower. We have all of this. It's a pretty foolish way to think, really. It's so prideful to think that their status, their power, their numbers, their wealth, that they can be truly successful in these things and with these things without God. And there are many extreme examples other than this passage where God steps in and says, no, you think you can do this on your own, but you are nothing without me. Your sin is clear and you'll be punished for it. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They try and deceive, God steps in, directly intervenes. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. They're all burned to a crisp for their sin. The plague sent in Exodus to the Pharaoh and the Egyptians because of the hardness of his heart. There are lots of examples of God stepping in and punishing sin. But sometimes God doesn't directly intervene, but he uses natural consequences as a punishment for people's sins. How many times did the Israelites abandon God only to be taken captives by the armies by that are nearby? Or how many times did they find comfort or security in their own armies, in their own wealth, in their own kings, only to get humbled in defeat? Both the direct intervention and the natural consequence can be tools that God uses to shake us of our pride. They reveal us of his opposition to us. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Over the past few months, I've been working with a friend of mine from the church on building a guitar. No, I, I don't play the guitar and I don't really have any interest in playing the guitar, but the idea of learning something new and kind of challenging myself is what has intrigued me. And over the past few months, I've gone over and I've borrowed a lot of tools and a lot of knowledge, and I've asked a ton of questions, probably so many questions that I've drove Johnny mad by just asking, hey, how do I do this? Or what do I do with this? But you could say that I've built the guitar all on my own. I've done all the work myself, but if I didn't have help, I would be totally lost. I would have a huge burn pile of wood and I would be frustrated of not being able to put a single thing together. Though I may have a little bit of woodworking knowledge, I don't have any guitar knowledge. So I, I haven't really built it on my own even though I've done a lot of the work on my own. I needed counsel to get the guitar to be where it is. Um, and in my pride, I could have just said, I'm gonna do it on my own. But that would have resulted in failure in pretty clear failure. So we often need others in all of life, in areas where we're weak, in areas where we don't have control, in areas where we don't have knowledge or power. But how often do others or do we turn away from the best counsel and from the best help that we could possibly receive? Not just on a personal level. We don't just turn away from God, from the help that he provides to us and the plan that he has for us. But we see globally, countries do this as well. They turn from God. What happens? What happens to nations when they say, no, God, you know what? We don't want your help. We don't want your intervention in this life, in our life, in our country. We don't, we don't want that. What happens? Morality becomes skewed. It becomes defined by whatever the most people want or what culture decides. We see the value of humanity is no longer arbitrary. It's just based upon what do you provide? Not the fact that you're an image bearer, but what do you provide for our country? This is why we see such a rise in MAID, medical assistance in, in the dying process, is you don't really provide much for us anymore. So let's encourage you to kind of move on. Let's get the next generation in and give them some of your stuff. We see in a Christless culture, marriage and children are seen as secondary issues or desires you can have down the road if you want them then. And if you do desire those down the road, you can use any means necessary to try and achieve those things or acquire them. They're not seen as blessings from God, but rather parts of life that we can manipulate depending on what we desire. Churches are not seen as something that's instituted by God, but rather just social clubs that close and, and stay open based upon all other social clubs. A civilization without Yahweh at the center of it is a deteriorating one. It is. And it happens in the life of each of us as individuals too. It happens in nations, globally, and it happens individually in our own lives. It can be easy to point the finger at people who misrepresent God. 
They don't believe in Jesus and they, they just misrepresent him. And as we consider the world around us, we need to ask ourselves the question, do I personally, do you personally downplay the necessity of God in your life? Is he actually that important to you? Is he an abstract God that, yeah, he created the world. We sing praises to him on Sundays. We learn a little bit about him here and there, but that's, that's all he really is. Or is he personal? Is he present? Is he someone that you know and want to know more of? Is he someone that you desire to learn about, that you consult when you're making decisions, that you rely on in times of need, that you petition to in times of anguish? I was speaking with a Christian friend of mine recently, and he's been a believer for well over 10 years, and he's got some young children. And we were, as we were talking, we were discussing how can we as young dads kind of point our kids to Christ in their lives. And as we were discussing this, he told me that he encourages his kids to read the Bible and the importance of knowing God's word. But then as we were talking, he's kind of mentioned that he's felt convicted about this recently because while he's been telling his kids to read their Bible and to know God's word, he himself has never read through the whole Bible from cover to cover. And while he's read most of it and you get a lot of it on Sunday mornings or different personal devotions, how can he as a Christian dad say that this is God's book and it's important if he hasn't actually read the whole thing? So he's making it a priority to read through all of that. And that, that should be a little bit of conviction for our own lives. How can we say that this is God's word given to us? This is from God. If it's really something that we just read once in a while, or we actually haven't even read through the whole thing. Or how about this? How can you say Jesus is the reason that we live? He has given us life. Yet you can go a whole week without actually even thinking about him actually thinking about how he plays into your life or the role it is in, in following and worshiping God, we may not be saying, let's make a name for ourselves, but we may be living to make a name for ourselves and not worshiping God and not showing the necessity of him. I can get caught up in this too. You get tunnel visioned over some new opportunity in life, whether it's a really good deal a house, a vacation, maybe your kid get invi gets invited to play on a travel sports team, maybe it's a new car or a new job, whatever it is. You spent time kind of researching, you know, this is a good deal. We got to jump on this opportunity. But you don't consult God in any way about that. It's just a good deal. It, it just makes sense logically. In marriage, if you don't communicate, relationships deteriorate. They fall apart. How many of us go and speak to God for wisdom or for guidance when making decisions? How many of you actually do that? You don't need to labor for days over every decision, but when is the last time you actually labored in prayer over making a decision? Communicating with God, asking for guidance, asking for wisdom. Is he really necessary in your life or is it just a tag on that's nice and it makes you feel good about yourself once in a while? God should be necessary for us to live, for us to make decisions, whether it's a quick prayer or a long time discussing it and wrestling with God with that. We should consider how we're living our life. Is it based upon our own plans or the guidance of God? Prayer is one of the most basic ways that reliance on God is expressed. And if you're not a person of prayer in all circumstances, how much do you rely on God? It can be easy to wait for your parents to come and help you in times of need or your spouse or your friends or whoever it is. And God may still use those people, but how many of us truly live out Proverbs 3 when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. This sin of reducing God, of minimizing him and his, his necessity in our life is expressed in many different ways. And how we think of what we have is another way that it's expressed. Think about the things that you have, that you've accomplished, that you have as a family, characteristics, abilities that you've grown. There's many different ways this plays out. Maybe you studied really hard and you got a prestigious degree, or maybe you put in tons of hours at work or you're a self-made man, 
Or maybe you look at the children of others around and you think my children are just way more behaved. They're way more respectful than others' children. Or maybe you take pride in your own physical abilities or your own physical appearance. If we think for a moment, is it not God that has provided all of these things for you? Is it not God that's sustaining the world and giving you the breath in your own lungs? Is it not God that can just as quickly take away your health, take away your physical appearance, take away your job, take away your kids, whatever it is? Is it not God, the one that has given you these things to steward and to use them well? How prideful is it for us to, to take ownership or to take credit for what God has given us? But I worked hard. I put in the sweat. I put in the hours. I put in the, the, the shed blood over this. Yeah, but who gave you the physical body to even be able to do that? The mental capacity to even be able to do that. You may be mentally beyond someone else and God has given you that as a gift. How prideful is it to think we are better than others because of things that God has given to us. God is the one who's given us all things. And in James 4, I think it's a good reminder to humble us when it says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's meant to put us in our place. Without God, we are nothing. And even with God, our time here on this earth is short. Let's not take pride in things that God has given to us. Let's thank him. Let's use them well, but it's, it's not us. Let's not downplay his necessity in our world, in our culture, or in our lives. And the final way that the people of Babel had minimized God in their lives was by disregarding his commands. If you go back to Genesis 1.28, God gives a command, a mandate to Adam and Eve. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Now, after the flood, we're left with just Noah, his sons and their spouses. And God not once, but three times tells Noah the same command. He says, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth to spread out among the world and to have families that care for creation. That's what he's saying. But what do we see in Genesis 11? What do the people do? I don't like that command. I don't want to spread out. I don't want to fill the earth. Let's huddle together. It's kind of scary going out on our own. We've got strength in our numbers. Let's rely on each other. Let's stick together. They disregard God's command. And the irony that we see in the text is so funny. The very reason that they desired to disobey was so that they wouldn't be scattered and so they would have security. And what, do, what does God do? He confuses them and he scatters them. The two things that they were trying to avoid are the direct result that they are given from God. That's what they receive. And now before God sends them away in verse six, he looks at what they're doing and he says, behold, they're one people. They have one language and this is only the beginning of what they're gonna do. Now, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Is God looking at them and saying, you know, I'm feeling threatened by their efforts. They're building a pretty cool tower. Their creation is kind of outmatching my creation. Is that what God's thinking? Obviously not. God speaks and it exists. God is not threatened by humanity's creativity. That's actually a gift that God had given humanity by being made in his image, our creativity. But God is rather instead concerned with the great evil of the people. No sin will be impossible for these people when they come together in unity, in their own flesh and sinfulness. When we put our desires first and we group together, terrible things happen. The evil in the world is so great for God that he flooded the earth, except for one righteous man and his family. And three generations later, the people unify back together and they participate in disobedience to God. The flood did not fix humanity's sin problem. It didn't. And knowing this, God decides what's best for humanity at this time is to scatter them around the world and to give them different languages so that they will not again return to build and finish this tower. Thus, the, their disregard for obedience to God is punished. Now, if you think about the authority figures in your own life, how often do you disregard their commands? Maybe a teenager might disregard the rules or the laws of their teacher or their parents 
but traditionally they would learn pretty quick, that's not gonna fly, right? Imagine a police officer catches you speeding. You're driving and he pulls up behind you, starts flashing his lights and you think, hmm, you know what? I'm not, I don't feel like getting pulled over today. I'm just gonna keep going. Maybe next time, but not today. Is that gonna turn out pretty good for you? No. Imagine you're playing hockey and you commit a penalty and the referee signals a penalty, stops the play, and then you just keep skating around the ice. I'm just gonna keep playing. I'm doing my own thing. Is that gonna work out pretty well for you? No. We listen when we get called out in those instances because you're gonna set yourself up for a harsher punishment. If we know that to be true for smaller authorities, why then do we just disregard God's law? Why do we disregard God's commands in our lives? Many people forget that God's law and God's command are actually good. They're actually intended to be a blessing, not a burden. Think of them like guardrails on a bridge or on a cliff. They keep us from making catastrophic failures. They preserve life and they save us from great damage. Jesus in Matthew 19 tells his listener that in order to find life, you must obey God. We very easily ignore God's commands. We live life comfortably. We do it in our own way. What does it matter if I don't run from sexual sin? I'll get to it eventually. Why should I bother working hard unto the Lord? The government's just gonna take my money anyways. Who cares if I work hard or don't work hard? Why should I go and share my faith with all nations and all people's groups? My actions are my witness. I don't need to talk to others about God. We, we don't follow God's rules or God's laws in our life. And then when our faith is floundering, we cry out to God, where are you? You've abandoned me, God. What? You did that to yourself. You've disregarded his commands. You've not obeyed him in ways he's called you to. And you're wondering why you're struggling in your faith. God has showed you what is good. He has shown you how to live. And he has given us the ability to follow it through the power of Jesus Christ. Why would you run from what he says is good and what he has called us to do? It's, it's foolish. It's foolish. God's commands enrich life and they protect us from harm. And if you don't follow them, your life is going to reflect that. Now, the clear application is not just personally, but it's globally. God does not desire humanity in the sinful state to unify. He doesn't. God is not a globalist, especially in this corrupt world. God wants there to be different countries and he desires there to be borders. It might be interesting for you to hear that. Maybe this is the first time you've heard that. In Acts 17, speaking of God in verse 26, it says, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God tells us that there is one race, the human race, and there are different ethnicities, but there is no ethnicity that is greater than another. God desires that every single nation in the world play its part in his plan of redemption, in his great narrative of life here on earth. God desires that. Why didn't God just say open borders? You can go wherever you want. You can live wherever you want. We're all humans. We all come from one human race. There's no need for differing nations or people groups. Why didn't he do that? Because nations are a good thing. Nations are a good thing because they restrain evil. Think about Germany during World War II. What happened when this country became powerful and started killing their own people and disregarding human life? Nations stood up to restrain that evil. What happens when other countries start ending the lives of their own people? Nations step in and they say, no, that's not good. We're gonna restrain this evil. It's not a good thing. In our modern context, we see globalism on the, on the rise, that nations, there's no need for this. There's no need for borders. We can all kind of come together. And why wouldn't we be opposed to the idea of solving major problems in the world, right? Let's all come together and solve major problems, all for world peace. Why wouldn't you want that? Well, Christians should be concerned for three reasons. The first is that humanity is sinful. We are inherently sinful. We all choose our own desires. So we've been talking about all this morning. We naturally choose our own destiny. We don't choose God's destiny. And when we come together and we unify together, we're filled with pride. 
we're filled with selfish ambition. Do you really think that those leading this really have what's best in mind for you? They care about you. Every attempt to globalize in human history has turned in destruction and wicked rulers. That's the result of it. It's never resulted in blessing. Secondly, who's gonna step in when all the leadership is unified? If they turn bad, who's gonna step in and say, no, enough's enough, we need to stop this. If all of the powers of the world are leading and guiding this, there will be no nations to step in and stop it. And thirdly, if you know Revelation decently well, you know that in the end times, Satan is going to create a globalist government. They're gonna have control over all the currency, all the transactions, all of the worship, and anyone that does not bow the knee to them will be put to death. That's found in Revelation 13, if you wanna read that later. And we don't know if this attempt to globalize the world is the end times or not. And regardless, we should be opposed to the idea of globalization. Nationhood is a good thing that God has given us to restrain evil. And when we obey his commands, all of his commands, we're able to participate in restraining evil in the world around us. And when we do this, we see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, obedience to God is submission to him, declaring, God, your ways are better than my ways. Your rule is supreme. And acts of submission to God can take various forms. But one act of submission or obedience that God has commanded his people to participate in is communion. So in just a moment, we're gonna give you a chance to respond in obedience to God through communion. But before we move into that, let's take a moment and pray to God. God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for what Jesus has done on the cross that we can see your commands and obey them. We know that your law does not save us. Obeying your commands does not save us. It's only Jesus and him alone that saves us but your, your ways have given us a proper understanding of what life should look like in restraining evil and keeping us from harm and protecting life. And we ask that you would continue your great plan here on earth throughout all of time. And we thank you for your activity in this world, that you are present, that your power cannot be suppressed by anyone. We thank you that your commands enrich us we ask as we prepare to take communion that you would reveal our sin and that you would lead us to repentance. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now communion was instituted at the last supper by Jesus and he was expanding on salvation that God had offered to the people of the Israelites in Egypt. And when he had recognized this, they say, hey, the lamb, in Egypt that was killed on behalf of the people, saved them from the angel of death. They were spared. But here Jesus is celebrating this meal with his disciples. And he tells them that while that salvation was one time for the people, this salvation that's coming is for all time. And it's once and for all by me and me alone. His death on the cross was once for all sins. Jesus' death is the, the punishment for the world's sin on his shoulders. The innocent is judged guilty. And if you submit to Christ, you will find forgiveness for your sins. That's what we learn from scripture. You will find forgiveness from your sins if you submit to Christ. Communion is for Christians. You don't need to be a member of Harvest, but if you are a believer in Jesus, you are welcome to participate in communion. The greeters can begin passing those out. But I want you to consider, as we just talked about the Tower of Babel, sometimes we can get narrowed in on one passage of scripture and on what God did at one point in time. But God has one story through all of human history. And the Bible shows us that, that from Genesis to Revelation, it's one message of salvation from Jesus Christ. And while we see humanity fail time and time again, they do not have it within themselves to do the right thing. They don't have it within themselves to save themselves, to create a good natural society. God has to step in and punish and separate and scatter and confuse time and time again. But as we move through human history, we see Jesus, we see his sacrifice on the cross and we see something different. We see God is preparing his people 
for this salvation. And what happens just a few weeks after Jesus ascends back into heaven, after he has died on the cross for our sins, we see in Acts 2, the story of Pentecost, where people from all different nations are gathered together in Jerusalem. And through the power of God's spirit, he gives the believers the ability to speak languages they do not know, to share the gospel with all people gathered. What we see in Acts 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, where God once scattered the people and confused their languages for their sin. Now through the power of Christ, God has gathered people together and he has unified them in one tongue through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's amazing. It's a miracle. It shows us God's great plan for humanity, his great narrative through all time. He knew what would happen and he's preparing his people for this. And when we think about the power of God to redeem, the power of God to restore, we see while people may be confused and we may all have different languages, through Christ, he is unifying us in him. He's bringing us together as one people group while we may still speak different languages, all saying the exact same message. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. He is savior over all, he has died for my sins and my act of obedience, I will no longer seek my own destiny, but I will praise and worship him. He is Lord, he is King. So if you have not confessed that before ever in your life, you can take a chance now. You can pray now, God, I wanna submit to you. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to redeem me from my sin. My own desire, my own destiny always leads to death. Free me from that. And if you've been living your own life and you have said that before, return to God, repent, confess your sins and find freedom that is only found in Christ. I'm gonna pray and I encourage you to pray with me and then we will eat and drink together. God, we thank you. You are so, so, so good to us. You give us chances time and time again. You've given us the breath in our lungs to be here this morning. We ask that you would convict us of our sin, that you would lead us to real repentance and that we would find life and life abundantly in you, the only place it can be found. We thank you for all your goodness to us. We thank you for your death on the cross and we thank you for the life that's found in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat and drink together.